Uh, if you were in my classroom, I would make you all move to the very center, uh, so it was less awkward for everybody. Uh, my name is Brent. Uh, I'm pretty excited I get to preach to you this week. First Peter is uh, one of my favorite uh, books uh, in the New Testament, uh, mostly because in, in studying it, I realized that it uh, echoes, a lot like my voice is right now, uh, it echoes, it echoes, it echoes, it echoes uh, the book of John, the Gospel of John, and, and something about the Gospel of John is just really special to me. Uh, I really see just uh, the tenderness, the kindness, uh, the authority uh, of Jesus in it. And so when I, when I read Peter, I really see Peter echoing uh, really much of what, what Jesus said, and especially this uh, chapter uh, today. We're in chapter 4. We're kind of getting to the end of the series uh, but chapter 4 really does echo uh, John uh, 14 to 17. So I, really, I would encourage you, if, if you're looking for, hey, I don't know where I'm going to spend time in the Word this week, uh, really, th- those chapters in John uh, are, are really something uh, special. So uh, I- I'm excited. I haven't got to preach in a while. Uh, usually preaching weeks uh, for me are uh, not fantastic. I don't, uh, it's not my favorite thing to do. Uh, but today I'm especially excited uh, to be able to preach uh, from the book of First Peter. Uh, so, uh, I think uh, the, the other reason I'm really excited about this chapter is I, I don't know a ton about uh, writing. I'm actually a really a bad writer, but I, I had to teach writing to high school kids. Uh, and, and one of the things that I would teach them, and those of you who are language arts teachers and writers, uh, I'm very sorry. Uh, but I was like, hey, if, so if you repeat what you're saying, you can make one point. Uh, I don't know if you know high school kids. High school kids can be all over the place. They don't really know what they're thinking. They could be all over the place. Uh, and, and so I would say, hey, like, make one point. Say, say one thing in your writing, uh, you know, beginning, middle, and make sure it's everywhere in your writing. And, and what's cool about this uh, set of verses here in Peter is that's exactly what Peter's done. If you go back, uh, the themes that we'll look at today, what Peter's writing, what we read that he writes uh, today, uh, is, is really what he wrote in chapter 1 and chapter 3, here in chapter 4, and then again uh, we'll see in chapter 5. And so one thing we do know is that uh, when something is repeated in a letter, uh, it's, of, it's of real value and real worth. Uh, so I would encourage you, um, as we uh, pray, uh, to invite the Spirit to do uh, a work uh, in you, as I invite the Spirit to do a work uh, through me, that he would refine and redefine for us our understanding of what it means uh, to embrace suffering uh, as we follow after Jesus, uh, and that he would uh, teach us how to have joy in that. So if you would uh, join me and let's pray. Father, your word is good and true and trustworthy. We thank you today for uh, the work that you're already doing in us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come and worship through song and through confession of our sin and uh, through hearing the assurance of of pardoning grace. Uh, Lord, I pray that in us uh, today, even in our time in the word and through the sermon, uh, you would stir up hearts hearts, uh, that worship, uh, stir in us uh, hearts that worship. Lord, I pray that your spirit... Uh, would lead us in this time together, uh, that uh, my words uh, would reflect uh, you and point to you, uh, and that we would be encouraged um, and equipped uh, to be uh, your body, Jesus. Work in us, work through us uh, for our joy, true joy, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you will, uh, if you will, if you'll open your Bible uh, to First uh, Peter uh, chapter 4, that's where we are. We're going to read uh, verses 12 
uh, to 19. So I'll give you guys a second if you want to go ahead and open up your Bible and get there. All right, so 1 Peter 4, uh, verses 12 to 19. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. A meddler somebody who gets in other people's business. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, before we really get into it, I want to look at a couple things uh, in verse 12. Uh, if you look down, you'll see verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange uh, is happening to you. I think what we can do sometimes when we're in the middle of reading, we're in the middle of reading, sorry, is it, is it sound weird out there to anybody else, or is it just me? Oh, okay, okay. All right, well, we're just going to keep on rolling with it and uh, do our best. All right, so, beloved, beloved, beloved. All right, I think when, whenever we look at... Oh, that's hard to ignore. All right, so, I could just talk real loud. Uh, whenever we look at verses like this and we read words like beloved, I think we're, we're, we're tempted to just look at things like beloved and just think, hey, this is just a salutation. Hey, dear Kelly, I'm writing her a letter. Uh, dear Neil, I'm writing him a letter. But, but, but that's, that's not what's happening here. There's really some real value in this word beloved, and I think that we can miss it. Uh, we can miss it and jump right to the other stuff. But, but I think it sets it up, and it's actually a theme that we've been working through through the entire book of First Peter. Uh, Reggie has preached on it, and Ben has preached on it over and over again, but it's this idea that our being precedes our doing. This idea before Paul calls them to any, or Peter calls them to anything, he reminds them of who they are. This, this, this word beloved is a call to the people of God to remember and to reflect and to really sit in who they are. It's a call to remember their identity. And if, if, you, if you know what the word, of, word beloved actually means, the word beloved means one who is dearly loved or highly esteemed or highly favored of God. So, so when you read it like that and we go and we look at this again, I think it has a little bit more weight to it. Paul, or Peter is writing to the church and he's saying, beloved, those of you who are dearly loved and treasured and highly esteemed and favored of God, don't think that something weird is going on, that something strange is going on when the fiery trial, at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you. He's saying, beloved, don't, don't, don't believe and think that when things that are challenging, when you choose to follow Christ and you encounter resistance and suffering, don't believe that you're out of the will of God. Don't think that something is really weird happening, but expect it. He says, beloved, don't be surprised, don't think it's strange at the fiery trial when it comes upon you 
to test you. Now, this fiery trial, uh, the Greek word here for fiery trial is actually just one word, and it's the word purosis. Purosis. Uh, and, and if you think about, most of us, uh, I think, probably have taken some sort of maybe Latin in college, or we've done root words in English in high school. But purosis means almost exactly what it sounds like. To purify. Right? This word, this, this fiery trial, the word here, purosis, P- Peter's drawing from some imagery from some other places. He's actually drawing this, this imagery uh, fr- from the refiner's fire. Uh, it, it's the language that he actually is going to use that we see back in 1 Peter 1. And it's the same imagery that he draws from multiple of the Old Testament uh, prophets. Uh, I, I want to look back at one in specific. And, and the reason I chose Malachi, Malachi is an Old Testament prophet who's, who's foretelling the coming of Christ and what will happen when the, when, when the Son of God uh, arrives or this Messiah arrives. Because the same idea, Peter is actually drawing from that same place when he talks in verse 17. Uh, it can be a little bit confusing, but when you're down in 17 in 1 uh, Peter 4, it says now is, the ti- now is the time essentially for judgment in the household of God uh, to begin. And the idea of judgment there is less of, when we hear of judgment, we think of like condemnation, the verdict of condemnation. But the word judgment there is really talking about a sifting out, a refining. It's the same imagery that he uses up here in verse 12. And both of those are drawing back from this prophecy from the book of Malachi. So let's, let's turn and let's look at uh, this prophecy from Malachi so that we can actually get the full picture of what's going on. Uh, Malachi is the book it's the last Old Testament book. It's right before the book of Matthew. Uh, I don't know what else to tell you other than it's right about here. It's not halfway. Like, if you're in the Psalms, you can be like, hey, this is halfway. Uh, but let's go there. Let's look at Malachi 3, and we're going to look specifically at verses uh, 1 to 4. Remember, Malachi, Old Testament prophet, foretelling the coming of Christ. What does he say? Behold, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure? Who can endure the day of his coming, and who could stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. I do want to read 6, too, because I think it's, it's good. And he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I think that tells us something about the nature of the refiner's fire. I think that gives us some insight. The idea of this fire is not to consume us. It's not to destroy us, despite the fact that none of us can stand. The fire is meant to refine. The, the, the imagery that Peter is drawing from here is this idea of, of a refiner's fire. And a refiner's fire is meant to purify. It's meant to cleanse. It's one that you could put metal in and it come out pure. 
So he goes on. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening, to test us. Now, the word, the word here for test literally means to prove. Uh, Kelly and I have, um, I don't know if you know, but when you have a baby, you're up at really odd hours of the night uh, for these long stretches, and it's, uh, it, it's uh, really exhausting, but you, you, we've really appreciated Netflix. Um, it's been really nice company uh, in the middle of the night. And one of the things uh, that we've been watching a lot of is the Great British Baking Show, or the Great B British Bake Off. If you have not watched this, I can't recommend it enough. It's amazing. It's such a good show. They're all, like, having fun. They're cooperating. People like each other. It's not, you know, when you watch, like, American, like, cook-off TV shows and stuff, like, everybody's, like, backbiting and hating each other and saying really mean things. It's not like that at all. And there's some, there's really some delicious stuff. Um, there's been multiple times where I've been like, hmm, I think I'm going to try that. And then, like, I go and I find the recipe, and I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what yeast is. Uh, <laughs> but there's this word that gets used in the show over and over and over again because it's a baking show, and it's always this bread that's being baked. And it's this idea of proving. You put the yeast in, apparently. I'm so sorry. If you bake, I'm an idiot. I'm going to just try right here. So you put the yeast in, apparently, and then you, like, they put it in this, like, little warm drawer for a while, and then it raises, it proves, it proves itself. You put it in this warm condition, you put it in this particular condition over time, and it, and it, and it proves itself. And this word here, to test, really means to prove, and the very root of the word means to actually to poke, to pierce, to expose. So Peter's writing, Beloved, dearly loved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, this refiner's fire, when it comes upon you to test you, to expose you, as though something as strange is happening to you, but rejoice. There's one other example that it, it just it made me think of. Uh, we had a professor in school uh, who did a lot of premarital counseling. Uh, he did a lot of uh, giving advice to dating couples uh, and whenever young ladies would go to him and they would say, hey, I'm, you know, we're thinking about getting engaged, would you do our premarital counseling or, or, or something of that nature, um, he would always ask, uh, he would always ask, he, he would say, let me ask you a question. Have you been to see them play in any of their intramural games? I don't know if you, you played high school sports. You're probably a little more disciplined if you did. Uh, but intramurals is full of people who have not, had the experience of playing sports throughout high school, and so their emotions aren't really refined yet, and they don't know how to control their tempers, and they're so emotional and angry. If you've been out to an intramural field, people are proven. You see people's character at an intramural field. I can remember a professor, that's a lie, a dean of our college <laughs> playing flag football, and, and by the way, the refs in intramural are garbage. Like, we, like I was on the refing crew, and we made up the rules, like, while we were there, totally and completely garbage. And I can remember once, I'm so sorry, I hope he never listens to this, uh, I won't name his name, but I can remember, we were playing flag football, and I think they called him for flag guarding or something, and he just flipped his lid, like, like a dean of the students, just flipped his lid. And he takes the football, and he looks at the ref, and he says, that was garbage. And he takes the football, and boom, drop kicks it, and just punts it. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my. Like, 
that's, man, how do you, how do you, like, then discipline a student later? You know, like, and somebody comes to your office, like, oh, yeah, you're the guy who just lost his cool about a bad call, <laughs> you know, like, um, but, th- but that, th- the idea is that, that when we're on the field, when there's some, like, fiery, hot, tense conditions, our character is really proven, right? It's no longer about the facade that we could create or putting this image out of what we want to be or think we should be, but who we really are comes and surfaces. So the refiner's fire that Peter's talking about does two things. It exposes, it exposes our true allegiances, and it serves to refine us. And I want to talk a little bit about the refiner's fire. Uh, I found some pretty interesting stuff this week. Uh, But I want to clarify uh, something first. I I know that some weird stuff can happen when we start to talk about, like, being persecuted or embracing suffering for following Jesus. Uh, I think some of us might be, like, prone to dismiss it and think, oh, I, you know, I live in a a, a Christian culture where being a Christian is normalized, and so I'm not ever going to experience any sort of persecution or social pressure But I would argue that while calling yourself a Christian is something that's normalized, actually following Jesus is not. And a lot of what our culture and what our families and we even call following Jesus is really just uh, subscribing to a certain political viewpoint or social viewpoint or ethnic viewpoint or personal preference. It's not actually following Jesus at all. And I promise you, wherever you are, if you begin to follow Jesus, if you begin to choose Jesus, there will be pushback in every one of those places. So don't, don't think, hey, if I follow Jesus, I'm in the South, we're in the Bible Belt, and, 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 and it, there's no way that I will be persecuted. You're, you're misled. Then there's something else that can happen. I think there's uh, the, the folks who like, can be, I don't know, we all, we all know, uh, the person who's like about Jesus but is like really mean to people. You know, like, like hey, I'm going to be a jerk for Jesus, and then when people hate me, I'm going to play the, this, this weird, like, hero-victim card and, and, and say, oh, it's because I'm following Jesus. But what Jesus is talking about here, I mean, what Peter is talking about here, inspired by the Spirit, and he's part of the Trinity, so I guess that works, uh, but, but what Peter's really after here, he is talking about suffering or the fiery trial that comes as a direct result of us choosing to follow, choosing to follow Jesus that our choosing to follow Christ would bring about this sort of suffering. And and before we just think that the suffering could be something external, I I also like to propose that I think the suffering could also be, and often is, actually something that's internal. It could be brought about by an external circumstance, but the reality is, is this suffering sometimes is even, sometimes even we're being persecuted by our own flesh for following Christ. So, just want to have the whole picture here. Um, so, the refiner's fire. Back to the refiner's fire, right? So, do you know, you, you know right, uh, before, maybe you don't, I didn't know before this week. Uh, metal ore, before it actually goes into the fire, under natural atmospheric conditions, metal ore, uh, the pure and the impure, actually exist together. Do we know that? Did you guys know that? Um, I didn't. Uh, before, before metal actually goes into the fire, uh, it contains both pure metal and what they call dross, the pure and the impure, uh, the worthy, the worthless, that which is valuable and that which is, is worth absolutely nothing. 
And in normal atmospheric conditions, you actually can't tell this rock apart. It's one rock. Both of these things exist. They're interwoven, they're connected, and they are one rock. There's no way to tell how much of it is what. And the entire purpose of the refining process, the entire purpose of the fire, is to actually separate the two so you can get the good stuff that you want. The fire creates a condition, the furnace, the heat creates a condition where the two no longer can remain together. And in order to get the pure metal, the rock has to be in the fire of the furnace. And depending on the nature of the rock, a couple different things can happen, right? So if, 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 if you put a rock in the fire, this ore rock in, in the fire, and it was mostly dross, guess what happens to it? It burns up. It incinerates. There's really nothing remaining. If you put a rock in the fire that's mostly made up of pure iron, it doesn't change much shape when it goes into the fire. But in most cases, in most of the cases, most of the rocks that get put into the fire are actually a combination of the two. And when they go into the fire, they come out drastically changed and transformed. Different shape. It takes on a new shape, a new form, a new strength, and a new value. So what does this refiner's fire, what does this refiner's fire mean for us spiritually? Right? That's, that's the question. So spiritually, a trial or a trouble is that which shows us what we actually trust. Spiritually, a, a trial or a trouble is that which shows us what we actually trust. And it really reveals that each one of us have a divided heart. And, and, and the truth is, is we can't really even know, and we won't know, how divided our heart actually is until we get into the fire. It's just like the piece of work. You can't really know how pure it is until it goes into the fire. And in the same way, within us, there's a sort of amalgam of allegiances. Within us, there's this amalgam of allegiances. There's these things that we trust. And we have no idea what those things are or how inadequate they are. And we don't learn to put more of our functional trust in Christ unless we experience or go through the fire. See, unless, unless we suffer, unless there are troubles, unless there are losses, we don't really know what we trust in. We can't and we don't. See, we all start out the Christian life, right? Me, you, each of us, as we follow Christ, we all start out the Christian life, and we would all ascribe, or most of us ascribe to this theology that says, I, I trust in God, God is good, I live for God, God is worth living for, I worship God, Jesus, and Jesus alone is who I place my trust in. But the fact is, is there are many things in each one of us that exist alongside of God that we trust in. And we, we don't have any idea how much we actually trust in those things. See, we think these things are just, to, to us, they're just nice, right? They're things that we prefer. They're things that we, that we like. But we don't really have an idea that they're actually what we live for. We, we don't understand that they're actually what we live for. We really don't have an idea of how much our allegiance how much we are intertwined with these things, how much our allegiance is bound to them until a circumstance comes to threaten, to remove, or to destroy them. 
But whenever there is a separation made, whenever something happens and then there's a, sh- a separation that gets made between our allegiance to God and our allegiance to other things, when, when we enter into a circumstance or we have an experience where we can't choose both, when we enter a circumstance when choosing one means forsaking the other, when we enter a situation when choosing one means forsaking the other, then, then we're in the fire that Peter's talking about. That's when we're in the fire. See, it's just like the physical furnace, right? And under natural atmospheric conditions, the two can cohabitate. They can exist together. Our allegiances can live together. Think about it. For you and I, when things are going really well, when things are going well for us, our allegiances can live together. God and other things. Because we can talk all day. I can talk all day about trusting God and trusting he's good and trusting that he's given us the spirit. And the spirit's the one who's at work in us to preach and proclaim the good news. But when it comes Monday on a week that I have to preach, I'm in the fire. Because in that moment, it's no longer a conceptual thing for me. It's no longer a theoretical thing or a theological thing. Thing. It's not an abstract thing. It becomes a very real thing for us. In that moment, that's when we're in the fire. See, the fire comes whenever the things that we trust in are threatened. Whenever they look like they could be slipping out of our grasp. Whenever we come to a fork in the road. When we can either have an allegiance to God or something else, but not both. That's, that's when we're in the fire. So a fiery trial, a fiery trial is any situation in which obedience and trust in God will cost us dearly. A fiery trial is any situation that obedience and trust will cost us something. Whenever it's hard to obey, whenever it's difficult to obey, whenever it's costly to obey, whenever it looks like obedience could actually lead to loss and more loss, that's when we're in the fire. I want, you, I want you to reflect. I thought about all the different examples uh, I, could, I could use and that I could come up with and that I could present and, and say, all right, so think about, think about for you what are some of the, the, the can you identify a, a trial? And so I thought about all the different examples and I thought it'd actually be more effective to have you just think, consider, think to yourself, hey, when has it been hard to obey Jesus? When has it been difficult? Or costly. Maybe it cost us our pleasure. Maybe it would cost us our comfort. Maybe it would cost us our image and what people thought about us or how productive we were or our popularity. Maybe it would cost us our money, our political positions, our social positions. Maybe it would cost us our safety. When have you been confronted with the fork in the road when have you been confronted with the fork in a road where choosing one meant you had to leave the other? Th- those are the times that were actually in the fire. Those are the times that were actually in the fire. Because finally the two ways that have been existing together are separating. And it's only in these situations, right, in the furnace, that pure metal and the dross can be separated And it's only in these situations that we can discover where our trusts actually lie and ditch them. 
It's only in these situations that we can discover where our trusts really are and get rid of them and ditch them and turn from them. See, we, we can't sit here in nice times and good times and, and say, I trust in God and I want to put God first. God, I trust you. I want to put you first. But, but you, you don't understand. You can't put him first because you don't know how to put him first. We don't understand how to put him first and we can't learn to put him first until we've actually been in the fire. Until we're actually in the fire. That's what we can learn that's, that's when we learn how to put him first. And I think that, and we'll move on in just a second, and I'll tell you why I think this is good news. Uh, I, I think in those moments, we really realize why we got into Christianity. Whether it was about us or really whether it was about him. Whether it was about using him as a means to get to our own end, or it was about giving him our means so that we could have him as our end. That's when we're exposed. It's when our allegiances are exposed. Peter follows up verse 12. But rejoice. But rejoice. And here I think Peter lays out three reasons why we can rejoice. Why we can rejoice whenever we're in the fiery trial. Why we can rejoice when we're being exposed and tested. When we're in the middle of suffering. One, the fire is actually good for us. We need the fire. Two, the Spirit of God, when we're in the midst of the fire, when we're in the midst of the suffering, verse 14 tells us that the Spirit of God and glory rests upon us. And three, it's not just good news for us. It's good news for the entire creation, for the entire created order. It's good news that we're exposed and that we're refined. So there's a, there's a story, it kind of goes along the same uh, lines here uh, of, of the ore and the, and the metal, but there's a story about a guy, a pastor, who was actually studying uh, some of the scripture, uh, particularly some of the prophets in the Old Testament, who were, and he was reading about this refiner's fire, this silver being refined, and so he, he realized that he didn't have a clue uh, about the process, and this was before the internet, uh, and before you could just go find something out by typing it in, in Google or Wikipedia, um, but he went and actually found a silversmith. And, and, and one of the questions that came up, he, one, he wanted to know about the process. He's like, hey, what does this even look like? This, this, if it's an analogy that's used all throughout here, I can't really even understand what they're talking about unless I understand the process. Uh, and uh, one of the questions that came up as they were talking was, how do you know, how do you know when the silver's finished? How do you know when it's done being refined? How do you know when, you, when, when, when it's been separated, when it's been uh, cleansed, when it's been pur- purified, and when it's ready to be used? When is it pure silver? And the silversmith explained the process is that he would take the silver and that he would put it in the fire for some time, and then he would remove it, and he would look at it. And if he could see his own image clearly, He knew that it was refined. He knew that it had been purified. And if it wasn't, once it cooled, guess what happened? It went back in the fire. And he would repeat this process until when he looked in it, there was no longer a haze, there was no longer a blur. But when he looked in it, he could see his very image. I think that's exactly what God is up to with us when we're in the fiery trial. It's exactly what Jesus is doing. We go into the fire to be refined. 
and, and, I, and I love it. I, I know that most of what we've talked about so far is when we talk about exposure, we're talking about this, this filth being exposed, right? And, you know, I, I talked about there being good news, and I know you're probably thinking, and so don't tune out. You're thinking, okay, there's always the good news, the bad news, the good cop, the bad cop. You know, if there's not the bad news, there can't be the good news. But I, I, want, I want to propose something this morning, that the bad news is actually good news. The bad news is not bad news at all. The bad news is the best news. Because the fire definitely exposes the weakness and the inadequacy of our allegiances, what, what we've interwoven ourselves with. It definitely exposes the brokenness of our trust, what we've clung to, to our own detriment, to our own enslavement. But for those of us in Christ, the fire has actually exposed who we really are. It doesn't just expose the dross but it exposes the pure silver. We don't just see our brokenness when we're in the fire, but we get to see who we really are and how foolish it's been that we've attached ourselves and trusted in all these things which in the end will burn. Do, do you hear it? Do you get it? I don't, it was like a wow moment for me this week when I was like, it not only exposes our brokenness, but it exposes who we are and who we've already been made. If you're familiar with the New Testament, do you know what that means? You know what that means. That we have been fully justified. That we have been made right. That we have been credited with the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness belongs to us. That we have been fully sanctified. We have been made holy. In the very core of our being, we have been set apart from sin and set apart to God. This is good news. The fire exposes and refines and exposes who we really are and separates us from that which would, would keep us in bondage and hopelessness. It's for our good that we get the fire because we are placing our hope in the things that will destroy us. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not who you are. Let me show you who you are, beloved. Dearly loved. When the fiery trial comes upon you, something strange isn't happening to you. You need refining. I need refining. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia series, but it reminds me of Eustace. You know, when he becomes a dragon and he begins to shed scales man that's beautiful it's painful it's painful but it's good so in those moments when you know that following Jesus is going to lead to someone thinking less of you or following Jesus means setting aside your own pleasure and your own agenda no it's because there's a better pleasure there's something better for us it's for our good we're being made into what we already are. We are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are experiencing what it means to be saved from the power of sin. When we talk about salvation, we talk about salvation, we often talk about being saved from the penalty of sin, right? That we no longer will have to suffer uh, eternal damnation and separation from God because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. What we forget 
that we are in process of being saved from the very power of sin. The Spirit is at work within us, freeing us from our enslavement and entrapment to sin. And that's good. That's good. And I think we have to think about that, and we have to realize that, and not be surprised. We can rejoice. The second thing I said is that we can rejoice because we haven't been left to our own strength and our own ability to endure and press in these, actually, in, in the, in these situations. And I, I don't know if you know, but if, if you have aimed or tried to ever resist sin, you know how challenging it is. You know that it's the fire. You know that everything in you burns and longs to just say that one thing about that person. You know, everything in you just wants to make that comment so that you can get the attention. Everything in you wants to click that thing on your phone so that you can just escape and feel good for a little while, right? You know the fire. I know the fire. Let's ditch our other trusts and let's believe the truth. And when we struggle to believe the truth, when in those moments, do you know that Scripture says that we've been given the Spirit of God, that he rests, the verse right here, 14 says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And I love the word this rests upon is this image of covering us. We are covered in the fire. Who we are is covered and is safe in the fire. We've been given the Spirit, and, and I think and we're, we're coming to a close, but I, I think that we severely underestimate the power and the worth and the value of the Spirit. But uh, I, it'll be up on the screen, but I just want to read this from John 16. This is right in the midst. Jesus has just told all of his disciples. He's just told them that he's about to be arrested, the one that they've dropped everything to follow, the one that they've placed their hope in, the one that they believe is coming to restore all of the brokenness of the world. And he's telling them, hey, I'm about to be arrested, and I'm about to be killed. And you're going to be full of sorrow. And the world is going to persecute you. And they're going to hate you because they hated me and they persecuted me. And right, and right in the middle of that, right here in John 16 and verse 6, Jesus is explaining to him. He says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I, being Jesus, do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come. Jesus says, I must go so that the Holy Spirit can come. I must go so the Holy Spirit can come. And he says, but if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In the fire, we've been given the spirit, and because of that, we can rejoice. The same spirit that has overcome Satan's sin and death is in us overcome sin so the third thing 
It's not only for our good, but it's also for the good of the world. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. We're right here at the end. Seventeen and eighteen. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I don't know if we know or actually believe uh, what the outcome of those who are not in Christ is. And so I think sometimes we don't take the calling that we've been called to be ambassadors of Christ, to be messengers of hope and reconciliation and redemption as something very serious. But, but do you know that the scripture is very clear that those who are outside of Christ will be eternally separated from God? Eternally separated from God. If the righteous are scarcely saved, then what's to happen to the ungodly? And we... We have been called to be ambassadors to the world. And as the image of Christ, get this now, stick with me. If, as the image of Christ is refined in us and as the dross is increasingly separated from us, as we are increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus, we are being transformed in a way that the way that we live and the way that we think, that our living and our speaking would lead others to encounter the good news of Jesus Christ in the everyday stuff of life. Not that they would see our goodness and you know want that, but that they would see how God is redeeming our brokenness, how he's redeeming our mess, and then they would long for that redemption. Verse 19 says, Therefore, we can rejoice in the trial, knowing it is for our good, No, that's my words. Therefore, we can rejoice in the trial, knowing it's for good and for the good of the world. In verse 19, he ends this chapter and he says, Therefore, let those suffer according to God's will, and let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The fiery trial is good for us. The fiery trial is we can rejoice in because it's good for us. We can rejoice because we've been given the Spirit. We can rejoice because it's not only good for us, but it's good news for the world. It's hope for the world. It's news of Jesus. And I don't want us to be naive because as we go into everyday stuff of life armed with the gospel, sent as missionaries, as his representatives, as his ambassadors, as the kingdom of the enemy of Satan is crushed, pressed in, as ground that has belonged to the enemy is taken, reclaimed by the Spirit, as souls are restored, as people walk in forgiveness, and freedom, full of hope, as we pursue living out our identity as the church, as we fight to be a gospel community who's growing in our love for Jesus, who's growing in our love for one another and growing for those, growing in our love for those who are not a part of the family, as we see the kingdom move, we need to anticipate resistance. We need to anticipate resistance. You you realize that as we move, there is a kingdom, a kingdom of God that is on the move. We need to anticipate resistance. So don't be surprised. Let's be prepared. Let's be prepared. Let's set our hope where our hope belongs. Must choose to rejoice in and count it hope.
knowing us for our good, that we have the Spirit, and it's good news for the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your good news would ring an echo in our hearts this morning as good news, that we would remember what you're up to, that we would remember that we are the beloved, and that when we experience trial, that we can celebrate and rejoice because we have a better hope where we know that what you're up to is good for us. Jesus, I pray that you would convince us of that, that you would convince me of that, that I have a better hope, that we have a better hope, Lord, and that you would use us at Redemption Church uh, for your glory, that we'd be a people who walk freely and not enslaved to sin, and you would teach us in your grace to choose you, that you would reveal to us the inadequacy of what we love and show us what our hearts really long for. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fellowship and the presence of your spirit amongst us. I thank you, Lord, that you want to use us for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So each week uh, at Redemption, we take some time to worship. We worship through singing, we worship through our time in the Word, and we also worship through uh, taking communion together uh, and giving. Uh, Each week at Redemption, we take communion. Uh, We come up and we break off the bread and we dip it in the wine or into the juice, uh, representing the body of Christ that's been broken for us and the blood of Christ that has been shed for us. And by taking it, we're proclaiming the good news of the gospel to one another, that we believe it, that we place our hope there, that we, <laughs> that we, we, we long to know it more. Um, if you can say that, we invite you uh, to come and celebrate communion with us. Uh, if you can't say that, we uh, invite you to just sit and watch uh, and reflect on, on what you've heard uh, and consider uh, the good news of Jesus, that, it, that it's for you, that he wants you, that he's after you. Um, And then, uh, like I said, there's also a giving basket in the back for uh, tithes and offerings uh, as well. So I'll pray for us, uh, and the band will come up and uh, lead us in worship through song uh, as we uh, celebrate uh, communion together. Let's pray. Lord, as we take uh, of the bread and of the wine, uh, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded um, that you have given your body and your blood Uh, for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be reminded of something that's true and and real, uh, and that even as we take and we proclaim to one another, Lord, that our hearts would stir for you and that we would worship you, Jesus. And as we worship through song, I pray that your spirit would would move uh, and power uh, amongst us, uh, that he would fix our eyes uh, to you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.